Hello and welcome to the week at work. I'm your host this week, David Gibney. Again, um, I'm joined by my co-host, uh, Michelle Byrne. Um, the week at work is part of the Left Block project. Uh, if you want to know more about us or if you want to contribute to us, please do so at patreon.com forward slash left block. Uh, we'd also appreciate if you could get the message out there about the podcast. So feel free to share on your social media platforms, WhatsApp or wherever else um, you have the capacity to do so. Uh, as always, we go through the the, the, the news of the week, um, looking at mostly Sunday papers or the weekend papers and give a, a reflection from a left perspective of, of the way things are covered and the articles that are covered. I'll go straight to you, Michelle, just to see what you've been looking at. Any interesting stories there? Yeah, a couple of pieces caught my eye on the, on the front page. I picked up the business post and the Sunday end note this morning. But um, on the business post, um. Obviously, the, the main story has been led with the, the war in Ukraine. We're starting to talk about like the economic side of things now. It really dominated a lot of the stories in, inside the paper and in the front of the papers, talking about the e- economic repercussions for Ireland and Europe and, and kind of that wider discussion. Um, so it, the, the title is War in Ukraine Could Trigger a Recession in Europe, Warns Economists. And it's talking about like the prices of gas and oil and food soaring Um because as a result of the sanctions against Russia, um, which is really interesting. Um, there's an interesting piece from Jeffrey Sachs as well, talking about how we need to urge your peace in that. But I just think it's interesting in this whole conversation around the kind of, you know, the sanctions when we talk about oligarchs of billionaires and all of that. Like, let's just be real. Like, I, I find it really interesting how the, the word oligarchs has been used repeatedly in regards to when we're talking about billionaires in Russia. We don't tell them, call them oligarchs outside of Russia when we're looking at the ones in yeah. Ireland or the ones in the US or the ones in the UK. Um, it's like we're rebranding. These are the bad billionaires over here, but the billionaires in Ireland are fine. Um, we so we call them, you know, we call them investors, or we call that, you know, we it's just a really interesting purpose use purpose. It's definitely purpose use of that language. They've kind of rebranded these bad billionaires over here that we must sanction, and then these uh, these good billionaires over here that we, you know, they're fine. We'll we'll leave them. Um, we'll leave them off. You know, I just think it's really interesting. It's it's like you know these these ones here pose a threat to like, you know, white Europeans rather than like, like, and I just, I, the, the whole conversation about sanctions is bizarre because I, I, it just keeps coming up in this space when you're reading about like, oh, it's affecting our economy and such and such. But so these sanctions are considered bad. Now we're having that conversation about the difficulties and the ramifications on wider Europe when we're talking about oil and gas and food. But we've never really had this conversation about other countries who face sanctions. One third of the world is under sanctions from the US. Like if you look at like Cuba, Venezuela, Afghanistan, like we have like there is some stories coming out now around how, you know, the starvation in Afghanistan, particularly like more people are actually being killed by the sanctions than they were in two years of war because of the starvation and the, the, because of the US sanctions. And like, it's mad how, and, and obviously then the Russian people who are not involved in the war um, are also going to be affected by the, the sanctions over there as well. But it's just really interesting to see how we're having this conversation now. Oh, maybe we shouldn't, shouldn't actually, maybe we should be cautious about sanctions and how it's going to affect us. We've never actually properly considered this in mainstream media about how it's affected all of the Cuban people, all of the Venezuelan people, all of the Afghanistan people, Afghani people. Um, so I just think it's a bit rich, to be honest, um, to, you know, that we're, that we're now panicking about, 
you know, you know, planting wheat because we're going to have a wheat shortage and we're, you know, how, how are we going to address the food shortages when we've never actually considered our, the ramifications of us getting or other countries getting involved in um, applying sanctions and not actually calling that out for what it was. So I hope, I hope there's a bit of a learning in this for people now that it's on our doorstep, um, how that actually, how sanctions impact other countries who may not be as white as us, um, who are under the US sanctions um, and like the damage that it can do to, to, to people. And we're not even at the, we're at the very start of it, but yeah, it's just in- interesting. And, and, and there's also that piece as well, um, I think it was last week um, in the European Parliament. Um, no, it was a week before. It was around the statement of support for Ukraine, and there was a couple of pieces that were dug into the middle of that um, around how we should open up up access for LNG and um, other problematic things. But there was there was an amendment in that, um, and I know uh, on Rarsh Glass. Um, the, the left green block have been kind of pushing this one around. There was an amendment in that that, you know, they wanted to vote to um, actually t- like dig into the tax havens, particularly in Ireland um, and, you know, use that as a sanction measure rather than actually sanctioning the ordinary people in Russia who are feeling feeling a lot of that now, but actually go straight for the oligarchs, billionaires, whoever you want to call them. But no, actually, our own uh, MEPs didn't think that, that was a good idea that we'd go after the tax havens um, and actually go after these oligarchs, billionaires, whoever you want to call them, um, who, they, as they put it, are literally laundering dark money for warlords um, through Ireland, which is very interesting. But look, you can extend it beyond the the war money that's probably going through Ireland, but also obviously all the other dodgy billionaires and millionaires hiding their money in uh, tax havens in Ireland. So it's just interesting. But um, yeah, I that was a bit of a side. But <laughs> you know, there is uh, there is some people who are calling for diplomatic solutions. Um, one of them being a guy called Jeffrey Sachs. Um, I don't know, Dave, if you read that article as well. No, Sorry, I'm just trying to find it so. again. There's a lot. The- there's a lot of stories about the the uh, Ukraine Russia piece at the moment. Um, and this but, is in the business post, is it? Yeah, in the business post. Right. No, I must have missed that one. But just on the sanctions thing, um, I remember reading a book uh, by a guy called Keith Bollander about the sanctions on Cuba and the impact they were having. And um, it was Cuba under siege, but you now Cuba, as we know, has been under sanctions for more than fifty years now. Um, but the the sanctions part of the US sanctions were that they were, were preventing any medical equipment or medication for children going to Cuba, which was causing child, Cuban children to die. Um, Cuba has the lowest infant mortality rate in the entire Latin American countries. But this was America's way of trying to drive down their standards of, of living within that country and the data and the statistics. And of course, at the end of that, we all, all know that there's human beings that pay the price for those type of, of, of sanctions. But yeah, you're right. It's interesting that they were able to um, consider at the very least the dropping of sanctions on Venezuela when they realized, oh shit, we need more oil and gas because Russia's now, you know, not a friend of ours anymore. Um, but there is an article in the business post again, there just again uh, about the, I think it's the business post. I read it somewhere today. I've been reading a couple of papers but one of the articles um was talking about how the eu is talking at both sides of its mouth here where they're talking about um sanctions and all the rest of it but at the same time there's something like 600 to 700 million euros worth of oil being purchased from from um european countries from from russia still at this moment in time so i don't know if that's true and um, obviously haven't had a chance to fact check but sorry i interrupted you go on <laughs> 
No, no, absolutely not. Like that, that, that was important as well. It, I was just kind of trying to find that story that um, goes into more detail from a guy called Jeffrey Sachs and he's an economist and advisor to UN Secretary Generals. But it was actually a bit more of a refreshing take on the sanctions conversation that he has. He, he says that sanctions against Russia likely fail. Um, and he talks about how, um, you know, this kind of econ- economic warmongering is actually going to escalate the crisis. And I know there is calls for sanctions, but actually describing it as that economic war tool is important as well, because as much as you might not be taking up arms or, ta- you know, funding as, as well is actually now a, to- a tool of war too. And he's talking about how this could, could actually escalate the crisis as well um, that's happening and it, it isn't really likely to deter or prevent military occupation. Um, and then he goes on to say like how, you know, very few cases of US, US sanctions, even even the strong ones, having any kind of political or military effects. So it's really interesting to see this uh, argument in the Business Post, to be honest. Um, you know, it's, uh, he talks about, you know, d- diplomacy and the need for peace um, and well-being um, and yeah, that's yeah. And he says that, you know, that we might talk, we might start off with this kind of economic talk around sanctions, but that could actually go into like full blown economic warfare. So that, that was interesting. Um, and he thinks it'll start if, you know, the more people that start to talk about the, the sanctions and stuff, then the more likely that there's going to be more aggression wider than um, Ukraine is what I'm reading from his piece anyway. But yeah, it's interesting. He's talking about, you know, what needs to be done to be, to, um, to kind of actually have peace and talking about, you know, making sure that Ukraine is a neutral country and to avoid joining NATO. Um, and he, he also um, re- reiterated what I was saying there around like, you know, the tax evasion of unchecked funding was a bad idea in general. Um, and that he mentioned Ireland by name. And this guy is like a Columbian University professor. So actually mentioning Ireland by name as, you know, having a role in the, the tax funds piece is very interesting and kind of backs up that argument that um, on Rarish Glass I've been um, going going um, on the last couple of uh, weeks. So, yeah, and he, he said, he also made the good point around like he fears that like the short sightedness will lead to restoration of like fossil fuel investments in the US and Europe. And um, so, yeah, there's that whole other conversation around, you know, if we're cutting off Russian um, oil and gas um, what what happens next? Is it the US that benefit from that? Are we going to start, you know, building more LNG infrastructure, which is obviously something that Ireland has been, uh, people in Ireland have been campaigning against here. Um, and what does, and I actually read an article, I think it was one of the opinion pieces where, by Aidan Regan, who was trying to promote um, nuclear power in the whole discussion as well. So, which I thought was odd timing. Like I know we're, we're trying, they're trying to talk about other solutions and stuff, but like when you're talking about where, how you've seen how a nuclear power plant has been used in, you know, uh, as kind of a tool in war, literally uh, in this war that we're talking about, it's interesting and how that would actually impact, you know, further um, instances if there was um, of conflicts um but yeah i think that's a whole other conversation for another day but um yeah dave do you have anything on that yeah just on on, on that on the sanctions stuff and what's been of interest to people who follow football uh in particular has been the reaction to roman of abramovich over in um, the uk the owner of chelsea football club who was when the war kicked off he's, he's got ties to putin he came into his money in a very dodgy way um and at last, the Premier League um, and the the FA and all the rest are, are starting to look at it and give a bit of scrutiny around the ownership of football clubs. But um, 
they put these restrictions on the club, which will make it will make it e- impossible for them to to operate, and the club will probably go bankrupt potentially in the next couple of weeks if if, if it remains this way. But and there's been coverage of that in in the papers, and Matt Cooper has a piece at the at the back page just in in relation to it. One of the restrictions is that the club can't spend more than twenty thousand euros or twenty thousand pounds on away matches, so they have to fly all of their football teams and the football team the coaches the staff the medical uh, people all the rest they all have to um keep the costs below twenty thousand pounds and somebody came out i guess yesterday saying that it costs at least seventy thousand pounds to fly um chelsea players over to play an away match in europe and they're still in europe um as football fans would know but what was really interesting about it was yesterday there was an article or actually it was friday the articles from friday I only came across it yesterday in the guardian and it says, shouldn't someone in football also care about the war in Yemen just a little? Now, the article is actually really, really good, really, really detailed. But he's talking about the hypocrisy. Uh, it's by a guy called Barney Rene. Um, he's talking about the hypocrisy of, of, of all of this stuff um, about looking at Roman Abramovich. But um, Newcastle United was only sold only recently, only a couple of months ago. Um, I think it was just before Christmas was sold to the Saudi Arabian um, family. The, the, the royal family over in Saudi Arabia uh, who now own Newcastle United Football Club. They're the richest family in the world. Um, it's a state-owned company, so state-owned companies shouldn't be involved in any way whatsoever. Even last week, Saudi Arabia announced that they had executed 81 people in the one day. They have public execution still over there. It is an absolute disaster of a human rights country. Um, but beyond that, it's bombing and starving Yemen. It's 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 its mm. behavior is causing a genocide. It's causing, you know, um mass deaths on a whole range of levels. <clears throat> but nobody is talking about them buying Newcastle. And in fact, what he targets in this article um is Alan Shearer, who's a Newcastle uh, pl- former Newcastle legend player, and the way that he has been out very publicly critical of Roman Abramovich and Chelsea, but is completely silent on this. And it, I think everything about um, Ukraine and Russia and everything that's gone on has exposed the West's hypocrisy on so mm. many levels. Um, uh, you know, we all agree, and this is the funny thing the left is the only group, it appears, that agrees that these types of, of, of actions should be taking place across the board, as in not just the sanctions, any country that's invading another country and committing war crimes should be sanctioned, not just Russia. Um, And that's exactly what Saudi Arabia is doing in Yemen, right? The left is saying that, but everybody else isn't. But everybody else is pointing the finger at the left and saying, oh, you're hypocrites, you're this, that, and the other. Front page of the Business Post, McGrath, uh, Michael McGrath, Ireland can afford to take in Ukrainian refugees. Now, where is the article? from McGrath saying the same thing about Mm. Afghanistani refugees or Libyan refugees or Syrian refugees. This stuff, he's right. We can afford to take in Ukrainian refugees and we have an obligation and a moral, um, we're morally obliged to take them in. But why not everyone else? What's the difference between Ukrainian refugees and everyone else? Yeah, it's a real eye opener. Um, And, you know, even some of the language around it, you know, Ukrainian refugees what about the other refugees fleeing Ukraine who aren't Ukrainian citizenship that we've seen who couldn't get on trains to leave or couldn't get across the border um, who were having facing difficulty getting you know facing racism and stuff at the borders Mm. but also you know why everyone should be free from uh, 
you know, war and be able to live in safety. Like, let's just make that clear. But like mm. this, these instances of the language being used, even in that article that you mentioned, McGrath, like, you know, it, it, there's emotional language in there from McGrath. So he's like, you know, the cost pales in significance compared to the suffering and human misery that the people of Ukraine. Absolutely. But what about the people, the other people who are facing uh, misery from war? So like, there's a recognition there that, you know, people, like they, they, there's a human understanding there, this bad and we must help those people. What about the the other countries as well? And I, I like, I know people say, oh, what about Sri and all of that? But that's actually now just being used as a tool against people to raise, who raise the hypocrisy. We're, no one is saying that it should be one or the other. We're saying it should be everyone who's fleeing war and needs safety. Like that's not what about Sri, that's literally trying to raise the bar and expectation there and calling out the hypocrisy that exists in this whole conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's 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 been pretty eye opening, I think, for a lot of people. I mean, in 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 again in chats that I've been having with people who wouldn't be considered on the left, friends of mine that I grew up with. That's that's the one thing that's really stuck out for them is is how we can all welcome in um, Christian white European refugees, but you know, there's there's literal protests against the incoming migrants and refugees mm. uh, across the board for the last number of years. Um, one thing on, on, on sticking with Ukraine and, and all this stuff, one thing I wanted to raise as well, right, um, there's some heartbreaking photos on the front page of the Irish Independent yesterday's um, paper, um, uh, pictures of children, you know, who are being displaced by war. And we've all seen the videos on Twitter and it is absolutely horrific to watch some of the stuff that's been happening. And there are there are bits as well in, in here in the inside of the paper on page four and five with more pictures of children who've been, you know, displaced um, as a result of Putin's disgusting actions um, over the last number of weeks. But one thing I wanted to talk about a little bit um, is the front page. A headline, nuclear leak, Putin plots Chernobyl terror attack. Now, the article goes on and, and talks about Russia uh, is to pl- Russia plans to plant Ukrainian bodies as fake evidence. Um, and the article is by a guy called Nick Gutteridge, and it goes through it all. It says, here's the opening paragraph. Russia is stockpiling the corpses of Ukrainian soldiers to plant as evidence in a false flag operation at Chernobyl, Ukrainian officials claim. Uh, Kiev's military intelligence doc- doc- directorate said Vladimir Putin is plotting to release radioactive waste in what would amount to a terrorist attack on the plant. Now, it could be correct. I have no evidence that it's not. Um there's more articles inside as well and in, in numerous papers, and you've probably seen them yourself about um, Ukraine accusations that Putin is planning a, a biological war uh, and has been developing biological weapons around some of this stuff. And, and it's in the Business Post, it's in the Irish Independent and all the rest of it. And it is potentially true. I don't know. But I decided I'd look into the journalist who covered this, Nick Gutteridge. Um, and he's a, he works for The Sun in the UK. Um, and I'm wondering why why we're taking the word of journalists from the Sun who are not exactly known for telling the truth and putting them po- copy and pasting them and putting them on the front page of the Irish Independent. Then inside, there's a piece: How likely is claim of bioweapons targeting specific ethnic groups? So this is by a woman called Sarah Napton, who works for the Telegraph Media in the UK. So the first three pages of the Irish independent are copy and pastes from UK based journalists who again not exactly known for their uh, these tabloids aren't exactly known for their truth telling around any of this stuff so I just I, I there's no 
presentation of evidence. There's no pictures of of the things that they're allega- the allegations that they're making, um, and that's not to say it's not happening. But I just feel very uncomfortable right now with some of the information that we're getting from both sides because you're obviously reading some of the stuff that Putin is putting out and the, and, and the Russian media are putting out. We're picking some of that stuff up on Twitter as well. And it's just so hard these days to discern what's what's actually happening. What we do know is happening for a fact. And that's why I'm saying about those pictures of children are so important in this story. The human element of it, uh, that um, our hearts go out to what's been, what, to the people, the, the, the ordinary people of Ukraine who've, who've, who've been put in this awful position um, of fleeing their homes. And, you know, all, for a large amount of them are going to be ending their lives in Ukraine and, and moving abroad permanently and, and will never have the opportunity potentially to go back. It's just, it's so... It's so awful, but I'm still very skeptical of, and it's a terrible thing to say. I'm so skeptical of all of the mainstream media stuff that's coming out at the moment. Um, there's a lot of it that I believe is um, is is just not sourced correctly, and um, we should be. This is when we do rely on a a proper independent media. Um, telling us exactly what's happening, but it's the history of the media over the last 20, 30, 40 years has led us to this point where they're just not trusted anymore. Yeah, it, it is concerning, but it also highlights the need for people to have that real like critical media eye and to be able to to discern from some some of these pieces. And I think it's interesting as well because some of the well, some of the actions that have been taken, for example, by big tech in shutting down um certain mostly Russian state affiliated um, media is that some some other media is getting taken down in that as well, which is interesting. I've seen reports of like, you know, kind of socialist, left lefty um, type accounts being taken down as well and this that aren't necessarily Russian state led. So there is like this kind of, you know, extension of what the, they went out to be and like, how do we kind of even allow big tech to kind of decide what's right and what wrong, what's wrong without any accountability to themselves as well in that kind of discussion. Um, I saw, saw as well a Palestinian activist uh, reporter, I think, who reports from Gaza. Her stuff was taken down off YouTube. So, you know, we're starting to see this like mission creep as well. So like, you know, people might agree, okay, well, this this um, actual fake news is bad. Absolutely. But then this mission creep where you're starting to see, oh, well, here's some other things that we don't particularly agree with because, you know, they might call out other things that we, we don't really want to talk about then them starting to be taken down like that's starting to be a bit worrying um, about where that could potentially go um but yeah I think as well like as you say the reporting is it's it's I'm tr- trying to read as much as possible across the board on it but it, it's very hard to drink and like I even think like I was on the on Twitter and they have like the news outlet section and like on that as you know these are vi- verified by Twitter but you know even digging into some of that you know uh, a lot of it is US backed as well and you know you just kind of have to wonder you know who is saying like the what kind of information we're consuming but also who is saying what's good and what's bad information and um, it's very very difficult as you say Dave to try and dig through it all yeah I, I saw Oliver Stone's documentary which was made I think six or seven years ago Ukraine on fire uh, which um was hosted on YouTube for seven years has, has been taken off YouTube um because it highlights the the, the very real problem of far-right Nazi activity over in Ukraine. But they don't clearly don't want people to talk about that whatsoever. Um, that's not to say that Russia isn't overinflating that uh, level mm. of, of activity of the far-right, of the Nazi groups, the Azov Battalion and all the rest of it. But they let's be real about it. There's a problem over there. 
and it exists and to to do what everybody's accusing Russia of doing which is is um censorship of west media for us to be doing that i say we're not even censoring russian media well we are but we're censoring the likes of oliver stone like uh, and documentaries he made 6 7 years ago which had you know millions of views already but to take them down now those people can for for whatever reason they're taking them down i don't know but mm. um it's it's uh it's a very worrying time on a whole range but- of levels it goes back to that conversation we had in the last pod as well around like how people are treating this as a very binary thing and like and it, that difficulty and if you try to dig into something that's more, you know wider than that binary like more than one thing can be true at once you know like this war should not be happening but also there is a problem with you know the makeup of the Ukrainian army and you know I know a lot of people are putting funds that way into the military and stuff and, and even there was an example during the week where like I think it was NATO posted a picture of like a, a, a woman um fighting for the Ukrainian army uh, on International Women's Day and she had one of the uh, Avas Battalion logos on her um on her army uniform and had to delete it. So like this seems to be happening quite a lot where just like, you know, you're seeing the symbols on a lot of the army pictures that are coming out, like almost accidentally, you'd have to look for them. But, you know, you'd wonder like if that's the extent of how many pictures are going up and the extent of how many kind of symbolisms you're seeing like how big is the problem there as well is another conversation to be had. Um, and, you know, there's a lot, obviously a lot of funding going that direction now as well, um, which is a concern too. There's some, yeah. But as well, just to kind of talk about as well, that kind of hypocrisy, um, there's actually another piece in the Sunday Independent around the hypocrisy of, um, you know, how we treat different refugees and actually like it, it's a good news story and like the number of accommodation pledges for Ukrainian refugees per county and it's it's really, really incredible breakdown um over 4000 people refugees have already arrived but we have pledges of 15000 um rooms and beds across Ireland um for people who've pledged to kind of um help people who are coming into the country uh from the Ukraine who need um, a place to stay and it's really interesting because the Red Cross have coordinated I know Uplift used to do, have done this before in, in the past as Pledge of Bed um, but there's you know four, out of the 15,000 um, beds that have been pledged whether that be a room in a house or a bed four and a half thousand of them are standalone vacant accommodation which raises a whole other question about why was there 4,500 vacant accommodation full standalone accommodations been left idle anyway maybe their holiday homes and stuff like that but it, it's interesting because the article actually makes a comparison um of you know previously when they did the pledge bed uh, for Syria there was 1000 pledges made um in comparison to the 15000 that we're seeing being pledged uh, for the Ukrainian war um so that's some figures there and how society um in Ireland hmm. reacts to different yeah. crises now to be fair the Ukraine um situation has got a lot more news coverage and maybe more people were aware of the the pledge bed um initiative but it, it is just it's in there in numbers anyway um yeah. but i hope that anyone who needs a bed um can access one when they're fleeing from war as, as just to reiterate what we were saying before yeah and, and then the the last thing i wanted to mention around this stuff and i'm sure you've seen it yourself because there's been numerous articles of prominent people uh, talking about ending our neutrality, the Irish uh, position of neutrality and um, very worrying interview this morning with the Taoiseach on BBC where, you know, he said it's time to start talking about and thinking about this stuff too. Um, But Sarah Carey has an article in the Irish Independent 
headline, whatever your principles, when tanks roll in, it's too late to debate the morality of war. Now, one of the things I find the most disgusting around all of this stuff has been the use of this invasion by uh, Russia um, to argue that Ireland should become a it should end its neutrality and should militarize itself too. Um, I do understand the need for defense and and, and all the rest of it, but um, the 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 argument isn't just about ending our neutrality; it's about joining NATO. Uh, and you have to have the open, honest conversations about what NATO is. And you can throw all this bullshit of NATO being a defense organization around, but it's not. It, it's an offensive um, situation or an offensive organization. And, you know, there, this stuff that Sarah Carey is talking about, I found it the most vacuous article I've ever read in my entire life. I got confused in the middle of it because she starts talking about her family history. And there's about six columns in the article that continue to talk about her family history. Um, and then it ends in, in basically, yeah, we should, you know, <laughs> we, should, we should end our neutrality. That's effectively the gist of what the article is pushing. And it's talking about going back to World War One two ancestors of hers or a friend of hers or something or cousin of hers um talking about tom attlee um and tom socialism this is an, a, a column um, a sentence from a tom socialism was the christian kind and when the war broke out the brothers took different paths so there were two socialists one decided to go to war clement attlee was the other one sorry i should remember that one um but one went to war and one didn't and she talks about it as if you know well it was it was almost a bad thing that one of them was a pacifist. Um, I find this stuff just mad. How people can 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 be using a crisis like Ukraine to advance their own political beliefs um, is just despicable in my eyes. But we've seen it over and over again. And what it is doing is putting serious pressure on our politicians, despite the fact despite the fact that the vast majority of Irish people want to remain a neutral country. And I'm coming at this from, I was thinking about this this morning, I'm coming at this from a trade unionist perspective, right? Tra- like and whether you agree to it or not, but the system that we have here from trade unions, uh, like with the Labour Court or with the WRC or whatever else, right? We have two opposing sides. We have the employers and the employees, the workers who've who've combined together to form a trade union, and the court is provided as a neutral body, a supposedly neutral body that sits in between. Without that neutral body, you know, we're just going to have more and more disputes. Now, I'm not personally against disputes right but sometimes when it comes to the loss of life we're just going to need people who have their hands clean from some of this stuff and the stuff that was said this morning on the bbc which i might try and um take the sound off and put into this podcast from from michael martin was just so mad talking about how oh there's 500 million or something um that the eu has given to ukraine and 50 million of that um, is is in non-lethal elements and Ireland contributed to that part of the fund as if the whole lot like basically we put the, the fuel into the jet that's going to fly over and drop bombs on people and kill them but because it's the fuel we gave and not the bombs it's okay like this is not neutral this is not the behavior of a neutral state I, what we should be doing is funneling all of the money that we can possibly fund into humanitarian efforts to help people get out, to ha- give people accommodation, and, and to make sure that people are kept safe, um, as well as protect the, the protect people in in Ukraine where we can. But 
this this nonsense of we gave fuel to the fighter jet so we didn't kill anyone. That's mad. It's mad to even think that you're fooling people or pulling the wool over people's eyes by saying that sort of bullshit. But um, but yeah, uh, I don't know, Michelle, if you have anything well, else. It's on. not pull, it's not pulling the wool the wool over Russia's eyes. I'm sure, like they're they're probably very aware of like and taking note of all of the actions that people are assisting in. And like, let's be real, like Irish neutrality is has been weak. Um, even before this um, this uh, conflict is kicked off, like you know, the U.S. military uses Shannon Airport on a daily basis. Um, this has been something that's been raised for years. There, we have warplanes that are landing there. We've troops going through. There's potential that there's weapons and prisoners potentially going through there as well. Um, and you know that that's been defended for years. That 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 goes ahead. You know, we're talking about you know, signing up to projects um, in NATO and PESCO. And, um, you know, we're not, we haven't been properly neutral. And like, you know, you know, as people who are trying to defend that neutrality and, you know, being anti-war, like even trying to get us back to where we should be when we're talking about, you know, Ireland truly being a neutral country. We were far from it before this, um, you know, started to kick off. But we definitely need to make sure that it gets back there. Um, and I think this is highlighting it even more. And it, like all of this propaganda that's in the media at the moment about trying to, you know, push, you know, join the EU army, potentially talk about NATO, even though that's unpopular, but like fun, as you say, putting funds in for fuel rather than the weapons. If, you, if you're fueling the weapons, that's, that's, that's a part of the, the, like the war. It, it's, it's bizarre how he's trying to legitimize uh, and kind of rationalize, um, that kind of spending when it's money that's going to war at the end of the day um, and there's no other way about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, we'll move on or do you want, have anything else on Ukraine? We've- no, no, no. I have um, I have a story actually in the the Business Post magazine um, and it was talking, just when you were mentioned there about your uh, that, that journalist Sarah who was talking about her background and stuff. There's a piece here about two politicians' backgrounds um, and on the front page it's... Um, titled What's Wrong with Irish Politics? Joan Burton and Francis Fitzgerald will tell us straight. <laughs> Joan Burton and Fitzgerald going to lose. What's wrong with Irish politics? I actually, I, I couldn't, I, the heading alone, I was like, what is the, what possibly? Are, are they just going to confess all of their sins? Like the, they are, what is wrong with Irish politics? But anyway, um, so essentially the, the nature of the article is about like, you know, with more women in politics um, and, Look, like I feel confident saying this as a woman that, you know, this they, they don't represent me uh, at all. Like this kind of narrative of like, yes, more women in politics, but we need more like women in politics with good politics. Like there's no point in voting in women who are going to absolutely crucify women with their policies, you know. Um, and it just like the whole piece, it just kind of feels like a revival of like, two reprehensive women in politics, like, you know, putting their own gender over like, you know, class politics or, you know, that that's a danger to all women, like having women with policies that they stand over uh, in government um, actually affect, like, I just, this, this whole all women thing, it, it isn't cutting it. Like, you know, it, it and the identity politics of it, like really shows it, it's weak because like, for example, like, you know, we have Frances Fitzgerald who, you know, obviously many, MEP, many might know for, you know, her paying money to one of the Supreme Court judges or like, you know, the Mars McCabe scandal with the Garda whistleblower. But also even more recently in her work with the European Parliament, you know, she voted down a resolution to continue life-saving search and rescue mission of migrants in the Mediterranean Sea. Like that is a death sentence 
like to women and children and other fa- and families, men, that is pe- women drowning by mm-hmm. like because of a vote that she's made. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. th- so this whole like women, women first do- isn't cutting it. Like if this is what she's going to be voting for, this is not helping women. This is not helping um, women. It's not helping. Um, yeah. So this whole like girl boss uh, over everything is just not going for me. And I know there's a lot of that kind of narrative around International Women's Day and, you know, off the back of that. But this puff piece trying to revive Joan Burton and Frances Fitzgerald is bizarre. Like, you know, we, we even had um, Frances Fitzgerald. She also like would have abstained from backing the TRIPS wa- waiver, which would have allowed access to important vaccines for women in countries uh, that are less well off, of course. But yes, she doesn't see that as a women's issue, you know. So like this whole idea, I just it just drives me mad of course uh you know who t- took away medical cards who put loan parent payments and like forced loads of women into homelessness like you know th- absolutely hitting the most vulnerable women women in society and then like yeah and, and obviously everything else like, that she stood over that is not good for women it's not mm. good for all women that you know so this idea that like Joan Burton and Frances Fitzgerald are going to tell us you know, what is wrong with Irish politics? Them being in a double page spread talking about this is what's wrong with Irish politics and journalism. Like this is a puff piece trying to re- like basically revive them. It's bizarre. And like they even bring in, you know, like how they have deep. Fe- so, yeah, Francis said she's deep fears for the Ukrainian people. But she obviously doesn't have deep fears for the people who are fleeing and drowning in the Mediterranean Sea. So like the, the women that are there or like when she was in the, the National Women's Council, like back in, I think it was the 1980s and early 1990s, which is mentioned in the article, you know, how she championed, you know, uh, women's rights through that. Like it's her own women and it's the women in her party who only like two weeks ago were threatening of defunding. Uh, the National Women's Council because they weren't invited to speak at a protest aimed against the government policies on women. Like the hypocrisy of this mm. is just mad. Like how yeah. this piece even exists where we're trying to talk and personalize to women who stand over policies that are bad for women is bizarre to me. And I think we need to be, we need to cut through this um, and not like it's it, we know we need to talk about the class politics rather than the identity politics because identity politics is not working in this case for women and the policies that they stand over mm, well there's um there's a couple of things around this right there's also a an article um and w- bear with me for a second here while i bring the related piece to it uh but there's an article on page 14 of the weekend's independent irish independent dozens more articles about the quinn family are forgotten by google's internet search engine um and it's an it's it's an important piece actually saying that 69 independent.ie web pages were delisted in recent weeks um all with references to what the quinn family uh, had been up to pre you know, their part in the crash and all the rest of it, right? Um, that's on top of another 151 web pages from the independent website as well from that were deleted from Google search. Now, they're still on the website of the Indo, but you can't find them if you Google them. I can't 
can't, the search engine just has to completely deleted them and blocked them, so you can't can have a look. And the reason it's important is it talks about uh, the article talks about um, how the family being so closely um, intertwined with the collapse of of, of the banks, um, and that we're still paying a two percent levy on all non-life insurance policies as part of that since two thousand and twelve. That's been that's been happening, but now you can't find out some of that stuff if you Google it. Um, but in it, it talks about these two. I'll read out these two paragraphs. Others relate to uh, Kira Quinn's wedding, which was this is the daughter of of, of Sean Quinn, uh, which was said to have featured a one hundred thousand euro cake from New York. Um, one of the articles detailed how then Social Protection Minister Joan Burton described the cake as a Mary. Irish Mary Antoinette moment that beggars belief, and I I was wondering why they picked that one out, but and obviously they they hadn't read the business post before they they published it, but it it got me thinking before you'd raised this because I hadn't seen Joan Burton's piece of flick through to it that now, but it got me thinking of uh, of that time that Joan Burton stood up in the doll and said, oh, I see all these water protesters, I see they've all got very expensive phones when they're videoing at these events, um, and people at the time were saying that was a very Mary Antoinette moment. It's funny that she compared someone else to Mary Antoinette when all of the water protesters are caring, comparing her to it as well, as if, as if protesters shouldn't have phones, that they have to be completely impoverished in order to be able to protest against the policy that they disagreed with. Um, but, it, it, you know, and at the same time, in that same year, as the minister, um, she went against the Irish Congress of Trade Unions policy um, which was adopted in the 2015 uh, ICTU Biennial Delegate Conference in Ennis, which was to oppose the cuts to lone parents' allowance. And she actually spoke at that conference and completely ignored the whole policy debate, completely ignored the policy decision of the trade union movement, uh, and went ahead and cut lone parents' allowance. Now, lone parents, 99% of all lone parents are women. If that's a fact. And 63% of them were already living in multiple deprivation. And she went and cut it further. So to present uh, these two politicians as the solution to um, any problem whatsoever for women is just bizarre. You're you're completely that's the right word to use. It's just weird that they pull these out and say um, and say this sort of stuff. And the headline on the article because I've just flicked through to it. I like the way women lead. I don't like the adversarial nature of the doll. I mean, I I don't know who the quote is from. It doesn't say. It's it's one of one of the two of them. But both of them seemed to really thrive and enjoyed the adversarial nature of the doll. So um, I don't know whether there's a lot of truth in that as well. So um, I don't know if you've got any. Oh, there's another article I wanted to touch on, and I think you read it too. Stick with the Labour Party theme. John Walsh in the Business Post. Um, Future of Labour depends on the party offering a real alternative to populism. Um, now, I don't know John Walsh. Uh, I don't know what his connection is or if there is any whatsoever with the Labour Party, but he couldn't have written a more pro-Labour Party piece if he tried. Um, the next election is Sinn Féin's to lose as it has easily won over the young and working class. Labour must now prove anew that it is relevant to, to these voters. So it goes through about, um, well, his opening sentence is quite interesting. The next leader of the Labour Party could very well be the last leader of the Labour Party. Um, he thinks it's that dangerous. Um, that the, I, I, I don't subscribe to this. I heard this in 2017, 16, 17 off Labour Party TDs themselves where they said the party is fighting for its life. I, I, I still think there's enough of them there. And um, I don't think that the next election is going to be the last. I don't think there's any chance that it's going to be the last um, for the Labour Party. But um, 
One of the reasons cited for Kelly's downfall, Alan Kelly, who who was replaced two weeks ago, or well, is about to be replaced, I suppose, by Ivana Bakic. Um, one of the reasons cited for Kelly's downfall is that he's too strongly associated with the 2011-2016 coalition government, which is still allegedly a toxic issue for voters. But it should be noted that the collapse of the Labour, Labour vote over the past number of years hasn't been an exclusively Irish phenomenon. Support for Social Democrats has been in reverse across most EU member states over the past decade. Now, when I read that stuff, and I don't, I try to be dispassionate about this, right? Um, we Support for Social Democrats state, uh, parties across, let's forget about the rest of the EU, but the Labour Party is as social democratic as Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. Let's be honest about it. Um, like in the year that they were implementing those cuts that we just mentioned there earlier on, um, cuts to loan parents allowance, they gave a 405 million tax cut to the top uh, 18% of earners. Um, that's, that's this level of social democracy that we're talking about within the Labour Party. It's not far removed from Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, um, or even Sinn Féin, because Sinn Féin is a social... We haven't moved from support for social democratic parties in Ireland. People seem to put these so-called social democratic parties as Labour, the social Democrats. Um, And I'm not sure if they put anyone else into that category, but in reality, the rest of them you could put into that category too. Not all of them, people before profit and and the actual socialist parties are are different. But Sinn Féin, their policies are social democratic. They're not, they don't have socialists, you know, we're going to, take over the ownership and means of production and all that sort of stuff in their manifestos. They're tax and spend. It's it's the same sort of policies. So I don't believe in Ireland that the social democratic uh, Democrats has, has been in reverse uh, across most of the EU states, has it in some, I'm sure. But then he goes on this hit piece around Sinn Féin. He decides to really uh, give them a little bit of a kicking. Um, talking about the the party's popularity is based on a deception, Sinn Féin. In the words of Jerry Adams, its former leader, Sinn Féin wanted to send the Troika packing. It objected to the EU IMF bailout programme, yet it has never addressed where it would have sourced the $64 billion needed to plug the gaping hole in the public finances. If the party had formed a government after the 2011 general election, the austerity measures needed to balance the books would have been far more drastic and sudden. OK, let's have a think back, uh, and people would probably remember this. It was... Eamon Gilmore is leader of the, the Labour Party who said it's going to be Labour's way or Frankfurt's way, who said he was going to burn the bondholders. He was going to do all the stuff that Sinn Féin also promised at the exact same time. It was Leo Varadkar that said Anglo wouldn't get another red cent, not another red cent. So they were they were all saying the same thing at the time. Maybe Sinn Féin would have went through with it. We, we, we don't know. Um, but certainly the other two who made those promises, and this is, this is a criticism of populist parties. This article is a criticism of populist parties. Those two parties went into government and did exactly the opposite of everything they, they had promised. Now, let's address the bit where he quickly where he says uh, the $64 billion needed to plug the gaping hole in public finances, which he says in the article was badly needed and had to happen. The IMF has come out since and said it was a bad mistake. The IMF, hardly some socialist organisation that's, that's backing up the lefties that were protesting against the bailouts, but... The IMF said it was a mistake to do the austerity measures that Ireland did. We should have let people burn. So, I mean, it's, it's an, I don't want to, I'm only on the second column here of criticism, but I could go through the whole lot. I, I won't, um, I won't bother, but um, even in well, this. Well, my particularly, uh, uh, we won't say favourite, but interesting lines in it was, 
the John Walters analysis of uh, Kelly's politics, his political instincts were instincts were often sound. He was one of the few politicians to make a robust and coherent defense of water charges. <laughs> if that's John Walters' definition of politically sound, then I think that just sets the tone for what the rest of this article is actually about. Yeah, absolutely. And and at the end, even going back to the Ukraine stuff very briefly, but um, they before he gets on to the defence stuff, he goes through, you know, all the different things that he believes that the Labour Party should 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 put down as policies, like to reinvent itself. Now, this raised the question in my own head about what is the purpose of a political party? Is it it should be the implementation of certain policies, right? But here he is trying to figure out new policies that Labour could go after that other parties don't have, which does bear the question what is the purpose of the Labour Party if it if it if other parties are larger than it and already have the policies it has then what distinguishes Labour Party from anyone else and he, he's asking the question there but he don't, I don't think he's made the same connection I have which is like is, is there a need for the Irish Labour Party at the moment um I, I'm not saying yay or nay on that I'm just saying you need to make that connection if you're arguing that they need to have these policies but he goes then and says defense will become a key issue for Ireland and the EU in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine so going back to me find it despicable that people are using this to to, to tear down our neutrality <clears throat> he goes on and says in an interview an RT interview uh, last weekend Claire Daly the Irish MEP underlined the intellectual bankruptcy at the heart of her left-wing ideology. Intellectual bankruptcy at the heart of her left-wing ideology. Her her default position is that NATO and the West are the root of all evil, which she didn't say, by the way, because I heard the interview, and that military conflict is always avoidable, avoidable. Well, tell that to the Ukrainian people. Now, in that same sentence, he mentions NATO and tell that to the Ukrainian people. And I was just, well, tell all of your stuff to the people in particular of Libya, who NATO countries bombed to, like the country in Africa that the highest uh, had among the highest level standards of living um, and most developed nation was bombed into oblivion where now they have human trafficking markets going on freely and openly. Tell it to the people of Afghanistan, again, where it was US intervention that bombed it into the Stone Age. Like this stuff, this stuff from people, is nuts and how they get a platform is beyond me sorry i i know i'm i'm, I'm going on here so i'll let you come in but um i know you read that article as well so if you have any other yeah, observations there was, there was the piece as well and i kind of referenced it when we were talking about um refugees earlier around where he says the country has a moral obligation to accept these refugees mm. it's that language again that i was talking about that i've seen uh in various different articles how these refugees you know we have a moral obligation to, to um do all we can do for it's just yeah as you say i don't don't know how um some of this is print, printed to be honest with you but yeah it's it, it's yeah and this kind of yeah I, that's all i have to say about that so you've, you've dug yeah. into a lot um but it is interesting with that question you raise around you know what is a political party for because like in the article it talks about how batchik as the potentially new labor leader will have to carve out an identity but like Parity politics isn't about carving out an identity. It's not a branding or a PR exercise, you know, with a new leader at the helm. It's about the policies that you stand over. You know, and going back to like Joan Burton, like it's about the policies that st- stood over there. Like that that's what it's about. It's not about like, okay, well, how can we sell this person better than the last? It's it's about what they actually stand over policy-wise and then what they do with those policies when they have power. Like at the end of the day, that's yep. what it's about. Yeah, I, I have another article that pissed me off um, by Vincent Boland. Um, 
Cook's 99 million Apple Pay package is eye-watering, but he earned it. $99 million is a hefty paycheck by any measure, even in the rarefied uh, and entitled world of Silicon Valley. And he goes on, I'm not going to read off the rest of it, but he says that the remuneration for Tim Cook, Apple chief executive, um, by the group's board of directors, uh, not everybody's happy about it, but he's he's making the point that he's absolutely worth it. And I, I just gone like, where do people get off? Like 100 million euros or a hundred million dollars effectively is what this guy has been paid for one year's work 100 million and apple you just need to google the conditions that the workers are in over in china and everywhere throughout the world the, the people mining for the 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 minerals that are needed to create an iphone and all the rest of the batteries and all and he's worth 100 million um, it's just sickening to think that we live in a world where people think that that anybody is worth one-tenth of a billion euros in one year is what he's entitled to, according to Vincent Boland. It's just, what a mad world, especially on foot of a pandemic with, where frontline workers who are still earning close to minimum wage and they're not worth 99 million. Tim Cook, who sits at the top, as a CEO who represses his workers' right to be members of trade unions and to, to democracy at work, he's entitled to 99 million. So another rant out of the way. If you have any other stories there, Michelle. Yeah, there's there's a piece there as well um, on housing. So uh, Glenway Boss says price caps on first home scheme may need to rise. This is following the puff piece that we covered a couple of weeks ago about this Glenway Boss, Stephen Garvey, um, where he was painted, given all of the 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 page with he wanted to talk about all of the the policies he was lobbying on uh, for Glenway Properties, um, which is bizarre because he's back in here again, mm. getting uh, column space talking about what he like. He's been painted as this like pragmatic housing lobbyist. You know, you know we'll need to review the price caps of the um, first home scheme in, after twelve months. Um, so the first home scheme is where basically uh, the government take up a twenty percent. Uh, equity stake in the property to support first-time buyers. So, like, he's basically pushing for that state, like more more state money to be put into um, helping uh, first-time buyers to cover the costs of the houses, rather than actually addressing, you know, lowering the costs um, of these houses. He's basically saying, put more money, put more money, and it's just really interesting. Like, there there, there was there's a couple of articles about like how this like as it was predicted before it came in that the first home scheme is failing before, you know, before our eyes, like most people still um, can't even use the scheme because of the limits that are being set. And obviously the cost of houses within those areas of limits, like, so you're looking at like 450,000 for um, places um, in like Dunleary and Fingal, Wicklow, certain cities like that. Then other cities would be 400,000. And then there's caps of like 350,000 in other um, like Kildare, Mead, Limerick. So depending on like what the price pro- uh, price properties are in the area. But yeah, it's interesting um, because there's basically in some areas, it mentions actually um, Waterford and Tipperary are current, have no homes currently on the market that would be accessible to buyers who wish to avail of the scheme. So one, we already know, we knew before the scheme was introduced, it wasn't going to work. We've been shown now that it's still not working. But Stephen Garvey is saying, do you know what? It, we think it's working and, you know, we'll review it in 12 months to make sure that it's working even better for us again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just mad because like, you know, we, I think it was uh, in the last pod we talked about like the huge profits that Glenway property are, you know, reporting on a, uh, 
in their yearly reports. And he goes on to say how like he was comfortable where the caps were set for now. Of course he's comfortable. He's unlike sitting on a padding of money. I'm sure that's very comfortable. Um, but they're very comfortable with these these measures that are being made, which just kind of tells you, like if if the property uh, developer lobbyists are the ones saying that we're comfortable with these, um, with this coming in and with it being extended and, you know, even lobbying further for it to um, benefit them more, then it's it's the wrong policy, um, you know. Um, yeah, so it's just, it's just, yeah, it's just another piece in, in the housing puzzle by just and more column inches for a property lobbyist and then the back of that article, actually, there's another one that th- it talks about, like more than two thirds of planned new homes are small apartments. So like it, it talks about how we're moving away from family homes and more towards one bed and two bed apartments. Um, when like basically saying 68 percent of all homes to be built um, are going to be one and two bed apartments. And, you know, you have to wonder, is this off the back of, you know, the well, one, you know, is it too expensive for us to have families now that that's the type of housing that we need um, like, or that we can even afford? Like that's another conversation, but like, you know, the rules that came in, was it last year, the year before where, you know, you you can't buy up full estates uh, as a property developer, vulture fund, cuckoo fund, whatever you want to call them or whatever you're not supposed to be calling them. Um, you know, they, they that didn't include apartments. So now you're going to just see apartment blocks um, being used as a, t- t- um, a tool to profiteer off. You know, they're going to be bull- bought up and sold out again to build to rent and this article makes that very clear because like even like when we're talking about um the how like the cost um and the data that's available the irish institutional property lobby group a residential investment fund is even talking about well for us to break even it's going you're going to have to charge 1620 for the uh, by the developer developers making that um, and then selling it off for built to rent. We're going to have astronomical rents off the back of these apartments that are going to be built in the next year, these one, one two bed apartments. And it goes on to say how, you know, if you're selling an apartment for 400,000 is what they're saying it costs to develop in Dublin. Like they say a couple would need a gross annual income of a hundred grand to afford rental payments, hundred grand income to afford rental payments and only 14% of Irish households earn in in excess of 100 grand according to the CSO so like this is like absolutely out of reach um, development again been built and we're probably going to see it left idle because at this point it it seems to be more profitable to do that Um, Mm. so yeah a couple pieces there um, on the housing front in the Sunday Business Post Um, and of course then if we're finishing up there's the piece around and you know it's there was a lot of jokes made about it um, online this week around Eamon Ryan's comments um, on how we need to drive slower and the article where that kind of, at this point, it's a meme going around, you know, about reducing the uh, speed and turn down the heat um, in regards to some of the measures. But yeah, like the, the, the messaging around this and how like, you know, it, we're expected to be driving slower to save on fuel, but yet, the minister, the Green Minister, leader of the Green Party, is not talking about like the other measures that could be done around building public infrastructure, public transport infrastructure, actually making public transport free. Like there are other things that we can do in order to reduce fuel consumption um, and obviously to try and um, you know address the cost of living and stuff like that. But it's just, yeah, it's just it's at this point it's expected uh, from himself. But yeah, he's been all over uh, online. 
this week around how he's telling us all to drive slower and that somehow that's going to be a solution to what the climate crisis and the cost of living crisis that we're experiencing at the moment is just, yeah, he's very extremely out of touch, obviously. Yeah, there's a. I've I've read that piece as well about slowing down and 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 lower the heating in a country that already has among the highest fuel poverty rates in in Europe. He's telling people to be colder, buy more jumpers or whatever. Like it's just so out of touch. It's a real middle class um, Green Party position. Um, and on on another, we're speaking of such. Um, the page eighteen of the Irish Independent this weekend. Dublin Airport's drop off charges plan has nosedived with the public, but not all, not all the complaints have merit it's by caroline o'darty environment correspondent um and i don't know if people have heard this but like um the dublin airport has been given the the authority now to start charging people for picking up and dropping off people and and they're making comparisons across the rest of europe and saying that this happens everywhere um it doesn't actually happen everywhere but they're, they're, they're showing us like most of the countries it's like you get a 10 or 15 or 20 minute period where you can pick up for free that's not what was promised up in Dublin Airport. They're going to charge you based on your license plate. They don't know how they're going to charge it, whether it's going to be for the first minute, you get two minutes or whatever. But what I find interesting is Dublin Airport is one of, it says here, Dublin is one of the few airports of size in Europe that allows free car access directly to the terminals. It doesn't say Dublin is one of, is the only airport of size in Europe that doesn't have a rail link to the city centre. It doesn't have proper public transport infrastructure. And it doesn't also say, and this is really annoying for me because I, I'm I'm regular dropper off and pick up at Dublin Airport because I live so close to it. But it doesn't say that Dublin Airport is actually a major bus terminal too. So people get the bus, if they're going to anywhere in North Dublin, they'll get the bus from say Belfast, from Derry, from anywhere, and they'll get off in Dublin Airport to make life a bit easier rather than getting the bus all the way into the city centre and then have to make your way out because it's easier access to the M50 and all the rest of it. So what it's going to do is actually discourage people from getting public transport to Dublin Airport. They'll, they'll drive. It'll be cheaper for them to drive than to get a bus. So that's just one thing. Another um, two small articles, well, they're not small, but one more article I wanted to touch on was Helen McEntee, Justice Minister. And you might have read this one as well, Michelle, but um, she uh, pushed for the reopening of Tato Park in lockdown, some letters show. Uh, and the owner of um, Tato Park is Ray Coyle, who donated... Um, 4,200 euros, euros to Helen McEntee's election campaign and of which she had to, they were through three separate companies that he established, has established and, and gave donations that way. But he was forced, the minister was forced to hand them back because they breached the political funding laws. Some illegal political donations that had to be handed back. Um, uh, but uh, he then the minister was forced to hand back the majority of the money as a breach political funding laws. She said she, she has not received any other donations from Mr. Coyle, even though he attended an event organised by her local constituency organisation from which she received €5,000. Like, this is just, the reason I wanted to raise this is this is how Ireland operates. It's, it's insiders, people who, who are friends with, you know, big businessmen who are friends with ministers and then they go and lobby on behalf of this big organization tato park um and and she wrote back to him says yes i'm pushing to make sure you're included as early as possible we'll have a meeting wednesday or thursday this is about access our, we, we talk about in a positive way how ireland is its access is very good for politicians but the access being good for the rest of us means it's even better for the people who have the money and the final article i wanted to touch on 
was the father killed by tree during storm Ophelia did not want to go to work that day. Uh, the victim, um, his name was Finton Gross. Um, he was in Dundalk, driving out of Dundalk when a car fell in his car and killed him. And I remember this storm because I was I, I was working on behalf of the union, you know, urging employers not to drag their workers in on this particular storm uh, day because it was risking people's lives. Um, but some employers did, and unfortunately, this poor fella was 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 killed as a result of being told he had to go into work on the day. So, um, the reason I raise it is that that his wife, um, at the end, has some very good quotes. Um, in the interview, she called for clear, unambiguous guidelines to be brought in so that the next time there's a status red weather alert, workers know to stay at home, and then to remove remove the confusion for employers about whether staff need to come into work or go home from work during the height of a storm. Which which is badly, badly needed, especially in the time of climate change and more and more storms coming. We really need the government to provide proper and clear guidelines so that employers aren't dragging workers in unnecessarily. Michelle, I, I've finished up. I don't know if you've got any more. You're finished up too. Listen, this has been The Week at Work. Thanks to my co-host, Michelle, for, for joining me this morning. And thanks to you for listening. Please do um, share the podcast wherever you can. And also, if you can contribute to us, we'd really pre- appreciate the support. It would be if we'd be found on patreon.com forward slash left block. That's left block with a C, no K. Uh, thanks again. And we'll talk to you all soon.